Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A conversation with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs about her new leadership role. Yeah, I'm incredibly honored that I was elected by my colleagues to represent them at the leadership table. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. More people are falling into homelessness than coming out. Local agencies say there's no political will to fix it. It's tragic. My first time in 35 years, I've been uh, discouraged. A more contagious COVID variant emerges. We'll tell you what you need to know. And if you're looking for ways to stay dry this January, meaning no alcohol, we've got ideas. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. After a long series of votes and political wrangling to select the new Speaker of the House, the new Congress got underway this week. San Diego Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs began her second term in office. Jacobs, who represents California's 51st congressional district, also became the youngest member in the Democratic leadership in this new Republican-led House. And Congresswoman Jacobs joins me now. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you, and thanks for having me. You were sworn in early Saturday morning after a late night of votes to select the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. I'm curious, how different was your second swearing-in ceremony from your first? Well, you know, this is my second term now, and my family has still never gotten to see me uh, sworn in in person. And I've still never gotten a ceremonial swearing-in picture with the Speaker, um, because my first swearing-in was during COVID, and then shortly thereafter, we had January 6th. And obviously, this swearing-in was delayed by Republican dysfunction. And so I don't know what a normal swearing-in is supposed to be like, but I uh, am pretty sure it's not supposed to happen at one in the morning. How optimistic are you that this Congress will be able to work together to get legislation passed this year with Republicans holding the majority? 
I think that the speaker fight is a real harbinger of things to come. And it's clear that in order to get the votes, Kevin McCarthy mortgaged the House Republican majority and mortgaged his own speakership to be able to. So we're going to see the weakest speaker in history. And it's clear that he gave in to a lot of demands from the far right extreme of his party, many of which we don't even know about yet. And so I'm very concerned about what this means for the next two years. Uh, On the other hand, some of the rules that he agreed to, concessions that he made to his far right uh, in the way the House governs itself, actually it could be used by us and the few moderates that are left in the Republican Party to make sure that we do the bare minimum of governing, like the debt limit, like passing a spending bill. And so uh, I'm hopeful there'll be enough Republicans who want to work with us to do that. And in the meantime, we'll have to stand up for our values and our priorities uh, and make sure that uh, the Republican Party that's been overtaken by their far right extreme flank can't do harm to the American people. Do you approach governing differently being part of the minority party in the House? My focus has remained the same, whether uh, I've been in the majority or the minority. I'm focused on making sure we are delivering for San Diego, that we are addressing the high cost of living for San Diego families. And uh, while we're in the minority, I actually still think there's a lot we're going to be able to get done. Uh, I'm already working in a bipartisan way on the issues of military child care and military housing. Uh, I think there's more we'll be able to do in a bipartisan way on housing and child care in general. We know the issues that San Diegans are facing, and I'm I'm going to stay laser focused on working with whoever I have to work with to be able to deliver on them. Speaking of which, later today, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria will be making his annual State of the City speech. In it, the availability and cost of housing is expected to be a major focus. You've cited data saying that San Diego is not getting its fair share of federal funds from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. How are you working to change that? We're working directly with the Biden administration to try and adjust their funding formulas so that San Diego does get our fair share. We're also working on changing some of the definitional issues um, because part of the problem is that the way we know people experiencing homelessness experience it in San Diego isn't counted in the federal definition. For instance, if you're housing insecure, living on a couch, that is technically not counted for the federal numbers, even though we know that that is people experiencing homelessness. And so uh, we're working with them on definitional issues. We're also working on a big push uh, in a bipartisan way uh, on what more we can be doing on family and children homelessness. uh, And I should have more to announce on that in the coming months. The number of homeless on the streets in downtown San Diego reached a new record high for the fifth month in a row in numbers released last week. First, I'd like your reaction to that. It's incredibly sad to me how many people are experiencing homelessness. And especially when you think about the families and children who are experiencing homelessness, uh, many for the first time because the cost of living in San Diego has become so unaffordable. I mean, even before what we're experiencing now, I can tell you that my constituents in San Diego were telling me that it was unaffordable to live in San Diego, whether it was housing, whether it was childcare, whether it was healthcare. Uh, And so we know these are huge issues and we're going to stay focused here in Congress on figuring out what we can do from the federal level to make sure we're addressing it while recognizing that most of the solutions are actually at the state and local level. All right. Well, what more can be done to tackle the issue of homelessness in San Diego from the federal level? Uh, I mean, how do you see HUD funding helping? 
One of the things I've been pushing for, uh, and we almost got in uh, the Build Back Better Act that wasn't, was additional money for federal, additional federal housing money, specifically to go to Section 8 housing vouchers. We know in San Diego, the wait list for a Section 8 housing voucher is between eight and 14 years long. And by the time you get it, your situation has has totally changed, let alone once you get that voucher, uh, there are very few places that actually will take it uh, and accept it even though there has been legislation passed. Uh, and so I personally think that Section 8 housing vouchers should be universal, that if you're eligible for them, you should receive them, uh, just like we have with other programs. But in the meantime, we're trying to get as much funding as we can to expand the Section 8 housing voucher program and make sure that the reimbursement rate for the house, Section 8 housing voucher is enough to actually be able to afford rent in San Diego. On your website, you are reaching out to constituents to find out what their priorities are for the new Congress. What kind of responses have you gotten? You'll be unsurprised to know that many of the responses are really around these high cost of living issues. We get a lot of people writing into us about childcare. You know, even before the pandemic, we had a childcare crisis in San Diego where we had about 60% of San Diego families who couldn't find or afford the childcare that met their needs. And we know it's only gotten worse. We know about 500 childcare providers closed during the pandemic. Uh, and we are really at a crisis point in our childcare system in San Diego. And it's affecting everything. It's affecting people's ability to go to work, which is affecting our labor force participation, which impacts prices. Um, so I'm really focused on making sure that we're addressing this child care crisis. It's not good for the workers. It's not good for the families. And frankly, it's not good for the kids if we don't. And on child care, there's also an additional $1.85 billion intended to expand child care access to low-income families. We spoke yesterday on the program about how state child care subsidies are not making it to some of the neediest families. How do you see the federal dollars helping here in San Diego County? Yeah, I'm really proud that I was able to get that additional funding for child care into the omnibus legislation that we passed, the, the big federal spending legislation that we passed at the end of last year. Uh, it was a hard fight to get it in there. I led a letter uh, of more than half of my uh, colleagues in the Democratic caucus to try and push for that. And, I, and I'm really glad we were able to do it. Um, so what that will do is that it will give funding directly to the state to expand their voucher program. We know we have a very long wait list in San Diego. So hopefully this additional funding can help address that waitlist issue. Um, but also, uh, we're working to make sure that more families know of their eligibility for this so that they can work with the county, with the YMCA CRS, which is our local county uh, referral service to be able to get access to these vouchers uh, so that more people who need it are able to get it. And President Biden signed the $1.7 trillion spending bill at the end of last year. You noted there's $800 million allocated for cities like San Diego to aid migrants and asylum seekers. Can you share how much of that money will come to the San Diego region and how it can be used to help? We're still working uh, with the Department of uh, Homeland Security with FEMA, who the money will go through, to figure out exactly where the money will be allocated between us and other border regions. But uh it was a big push of, of myself and others in the border communities to make sure we're getting that funding to the border communities uh, to be able to help us uh, address the, uh, the situation. And, you know, working 
for us in in San Diego, uh, I know we have some amazing nonprofit organizations who have been doing great work, making sure that the people who are seeking their legal lawful right to asylum are able to get processed and able to get the help that they need. And this funding will make sure they have the resources to continue doing that incredible work. Now, as we mentioned, you are the youngest person in Democratic leadership. How will this new role help you to achieve these legislative priorities? Yeah, I'm incredibly honored that I was elected by my colleagues to represent them at the leadership table. And I am incredibly proud that it will mean an additional voice for San Diego in the House Democratic Caucus, uh, especially as we're seeing the change in Democratic leadership um, and uh, Speaker Pelosi becoming Speaker Emerita. Uh, We need to make sure we have strong California leadership. Um, So I'm working directly with Leader Hakeem Jeffries uh, to make sure that our priorities are heard and that you know, most of us young members, uh, newer members are actually getting what we need to be successful for our communities. I've been speaking with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, who represents California's 51st district. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The number of people living on the streets in downtown San Diego is at record levels. The Downtown San Diego Partnership has documented a new record high every month since August. In December, more than 1,800 people were living on sidewalks and in vehicles. The county's numbers will be determined in the annual count later this month. But we already know more people are falling into homelessness than are getting out. It's a growing problem for the people on the streets, other residents, retailers, businesses. It's not good for anybody. And despite intervention, the problem continues. Joining me now to discuss is Bob McElroy, CEO of the Alpha Project, which provides services to homeless residents in San Diego. Bob, welcome back to Midday Edition. Great. Great to be back. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on this latest count for downtown San Diego? This is the fifth consecutive month of record high numbers. Well, we're overwhelmed. I mean, we see it every day. We've got uh, 500 and almost 600 beds uh, right now, just, just the shelters. And uh, there's no room at the end. I mean, we're 90, 99% full all the time. And, and, you know, it's tragic. I've, I've, my first time in 35 years, I've, I've been uh, discouraged but we're, we're working on some bigger things. A violent incident at an encampment that was reported by the San Diego Union-Tribune this week has raised a lot of questions about the dangers of makeshift homeless encampments. Can you talk about what those dangers are and why they persist? Well, I mean, when you, when you mix um, mental health issues with drugs and alcohol and addiction, um, uh, futility, um, fear, uh, all those things. We just had a woman uh, stabbed to death uh, right after Gary's article here, the day after, right in front of our 17th and Imperial uh, facility. She was in her tent and the guy stabbed her to death. As I said, the, the tragedy is these things go unreported because people are, are fearful that if they talk to the police and you know identify the perpetrators here, that there's going to be retaliation against them. But this, is, this has been a dirty little secret in, in my 37 years I've been down here. It's always gone on. And stealing from each other. And if you 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 didn't pay me for that bag of dope you gave me, and there's going to be a consequence. And um, somebody makes me mad, and as the video showed here that uh, Gary uh, uh, published, you know, a guy had a metal bar and he's hitting people with it, and uh, and he didn't go to jail. And and the, and the police come back and say they're frustrated too. They come back and say they their hands are tied. They can't do anything about it. So 
it's a vicious, vicious cycle that our folks have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, you've been working in this sector for quite some time. Do you think there's anything particularly difficult about tackling this issue now as opposed to what's been done in the past? You know, it's just, uh, you know, the sky, we have the highest rents in the, in the entire United States. Mortgages the same way. Um, smart people come to San Diego. If you're going to be homeless, come to San Diego. I mean, they, the, the other folks are on 12-foot snowdrifts in New York. Uh, not a good option. But we, we've seen, I, there's a new population that we've seen recently of folks who are not traditionally homeless folks. These are folks that were on the, uh, during COVID, were locked down. They uh, self-medicated with drugs and alcohol. Their jobs were uh, discontinued. They didn't have anything coming back to. Um, when life started to be restored uh, to the, the working public with no income, the government stimulus checks, I guess, uh, dried up. Now they found themselves living in their cars and their cars died. They don't have the money to fix. So it's a downward spiral. And I'm seeing folks down here that, that are now just in their addiction and um, don't struggle with the mental health issues uh, that uh, you know many of our folks struggle with. Uh, and so it's like it's a new subculture of this population that seems to be growing. In your opinion, what are some of the most important steps that need to be taken in order to make a noticeable difference in this issue locally? Well, you know, there's two things. Certainly we have to have a starting point, which is more facilities like shelters that people can get into and at least, you know, start the process of recovery, detox from life on the streets and have some hope um, uh, of a better future. Certainly you're not, you're not getting that with the, with the 10 cities, but you know, everybody talks about housing, which sounds really good, but it's not going to happen. I mean, we're building 277 units downtown now. It's a five to seven year project. prospect and you know the units now are 450,000 a piece for 360 square feet uh, in LA they're they're 700,000 to 1 million there were just an audit that the city of uh, Los Angeles set aside 2 million dollars to build housing they built less than 1,000 units and some of those units were over a million dollars it's just it's just not going to happen and then we need workforce housing and these these are the kind of things that keep me up all night trying to figure out how we're going to how we're going to make this better. And right now I'm kind of at wit's end trying to figure it out. I mean, I hear you saying it's just not going to happen. I mean, but do you think there, there could be some policies put in place to maybe cap uh, the cost of housing or require more affordable housing or something like that? Is, is that uh, something you see happening? Well, they can pass all the policies they want, but if they're not implemented, we're back here at square one. It sounds good. There's a lot of sound bites in that. There's a lot of, um, you know, ribbon cutting at a 36 unit place that opens up, which is fantastic, but we need 25,000. The Housing Commission did a report five or six years ago that if we did 25,000 new units a month, we still wouldn't catch up in 10 years. You know, because we're also missing the workforce housing also, the folks that go to work every day, especially in the in the service industry jobs and the police and teachers and stuff, they all need housing uh, also. My staff needs housing. They're paying two or $3,000 a month, 60 or 7% of their paychecks just for for rental housing so it's a it's a it's an issue that as i said keeps me up at night and i'm not seeing any light at the end of the tunnel at this point i hate to be the you know the the party pooper here but it's it's frustrating do you think there's enough political will to solve this problem or at least make a dent in it 
No, not not operating the way we currently are. Um, we have a bunch of we've got four uh, shelter facilities now um, that we're doing for the city. We just turned down one that was poorly, poorly planned. Um, unfortunately, the powers that be none of ask us who have been doing this for decades. Um, in the planning stages of these facilities, they never ask us on how to to uh, plan these things out, so that they we don't have to go back in the plan at once the implementation takes back and tear the facility down and rebuild it again. I mean, with with ventilation systems and flooding issues and putting uh, uh, electrical components outside when they should be inside, they net you know and and putting on properties that have that are prone to flooding, and so we always have to deal with those consequences after the fact when if they would have come to us and asked us in the planning stages they could have saved tens and tens of thousands of dollars and yet they continue not to do that so i have now um, decided that we will not um, uh, take on any more uh, facilities and programs if we are not involved in the planning so we're actually right now doing some of that um, some some fairly ambitious uh, plans to, to help so many more people and actually make a dent uh, in the issue. Whether this goes anywhere when it goes to city council or the mayor's office, we'll see. And can you talk about those plans? I'd like to. <laughs> but I've, been, I've been asked not to, but really it's incorporating uh, many, many, many resources in one facility uh, with, with an opportunity for people to be inside uh, a, a structure and those who are comfortable with uh, tent camping, uh, that would incorporate it also. You know, we did back in, in 17, we did that emergent during HEP A. Uh, Kevin Faulkner, mayor at the time, called me and Bob, what did we do? There's 20 people died already, blah, blah, blah. So we set up an emergency facility over on uh, 20th and B, uh, city facility over on 20th and B. We had 200 tents there. We had 30 families and 56 uh, kids. We housed them all. It came, uh, it, it was very successful. They can use that as a template or an example on how we did it. We had many, many other jurisdictions and cities and mayors and council people and congressmen come and see what we did and how we did it. And they continue to do that with the bridge shelters that we have. But you've got to be gutsy enough to do things in a grander way. And it doesn't have to be with Alpha. There's a lot of other great providers in town too, but all of us together, uh, the, the plans that we have are incorporating all the, the providers together and, and let's do this in an ambitious, impactful way. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Bob McElroy, CEO of the Alpha Project. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The Pentagon has announced that it will drop its COVID-19 vaccine mandate for members of the armed forces. The measure marks yet another large-scale reduction of COVID-19 safety measures across American society, just as another variant of concern begins to surface. Joining me now with more on this and all things COVID is our frequent guest, Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. Uh, Great to be with you again. Always good to have you. What are your thoughts on this revised guidance from the Pentagon that drops the vaccine mandate for troops? Well, it's all part of a, a bigger picture, which is not just complacency, but capitulating to the virus as it continues to evolve. So instead of ratcheting up where we want to get people boosted and you know get back to our mitigation with things like masks and distancing, we're going the opposite direction. Just as this uh, very difficult variant named XBB.1.5, which I wish we had better names, but that is starting to really become dominant throughout the country, already is in the Northeast, and it's destined to uh, be here in San Diego as well. Well, uh, speaking of which, that new variant is obviously generating concern. What can you tell us about XBB.1.5? We wish we had better names. Yes. Right, right. Well, it's talking to us. Uh, it's it's a very new type of variant, which we had not seen before. It's a fusion or a so-called recombinant of two previous variants that have come together and promote great spread, which initially was seen in Singapore. And then it got to New York, where it added two very worrisome mutations to make it more uh, spreadable. So what we have is not just XBB, which is this fusion, but now we've got these two added mutations. So it spreads quite easily. No less, it evades our immune response to a large degree. So it's it's not a good thing to have. Uh, and it's growing quickly uh, in terms of New York and Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey area, where a lot of hospitalizations have increased among seniors who are, of course, the most vulnerable. So that's the pattern that we're likely going to see in California in the weeks ahead, because right now this variant isn't in high proportion. It's, you know, less than or so 10%, whereas, of course, in the Northeast, it's 75 or percent or higher. So it's, it's headed this way, and uh, we need to be gearing up. Is illness any different with this particular virus? Any more severe, less severe? Yeah, really important question. There's no uh, data to support it's more or less severe. Uh, it's just that it spreads easily. And of course, it it's overtaken the variants that preceded it, all the other Omicrons, uh, including BA5 and BQ11. So it's it's not good that we keep seeing this evolution, particularly now it's finding these completely new paths, that is, this hybrid of two different variants. Uh, That's the first time. And the other thing just to note is this is the first U.S. variant to become dominant, not just here, but it likely will be throughout Europe. And uh, we're seeing countries in Asia that are already trending this way. So this is our American-born variant, uh, which is uh, not a good thing. I saw a headline the other day that said, if you're one of those people who have not caught COVID already, you likely will with this new variant. Is that because of just how transmissible it is? Or is there something else to this variant? No, that's exactly right. It attaches to our receptors in our cells, the so-called ACE2 receptor, really well. And so that's how it gets 
its spreadability. So yeah, it's true. Uh, reinfections as well as new infections. That's why, you know, taking this virus seriously. And a bigger story, of course, is if we're likely to see even further evolution. And, and we've dropped down our genomic surveillance sequencing throughout the world, 90% reduction from what it was. We've got the China crisis, which is basically unmitigated spread through a, such a huge population. Uh, so we got a lot of things going against us right now, just when we wanted to start the new year in a very favorable way. And against the backdrop of all that, Moderna is planning on charging anywhere from 110 to $130 for vaccine doses. Uh, two questions for you on that. One, what are your thoughts? And two, is it worth it? And is Moderna even as effective as it once was given these given this new variant? Yeah, this is a really uh, key point you're making. First of all, both Pfizer and Moderna, I think, are egregious to raise the price fourfold from what it was when they sold it to the government. I think that's just horrific to take advantage of the situation, uh, a population like this. You know, why does it have to justify a fourfold increase uh, from what it has been when the government was paying for it? Now, most people will have their insurance if they have uh, insurance cover this added charge. But obviously, this is just the greed of the pharma companies, um, unfortunately. Now, will people take it? Well, even now that it's free, people aren't taking the bivalent booster. And there's a lot of new data that's coming out, uh, which I've just reviewed in a substack, to show unequivocally that the bivalent booster has outperformed what we had expected. Um, it's doing quite well against uh, XBB15 uh, and the, the preceding variant, so-called BQ1.1. So if you get the bivalent booster, uh, it, there really is added protection. That wasn't the plan, of course. That was fortuitous because it was directed against BA5. So the boosters are important, particularly in people of a higher risk, such as people who are 65 or even 50 years of age and older. Or those who have other medical conditions, even though there's broad benefit that's been seen across all ages, all adults. But, um, you know, paying for it isn't going to help getting um, people boosted. And then the other thing, of course, is what about after four to six months of this booster? Then what do we do? And that's where we aren't taking this seriously enough, getting next generation vaccines that are much more durable, lasting for years against all variants, and also the nasal vaccine. So we have to get uh, that priority because we can't just expect people to get shots every four to six months and also have it to pay for. And what is the latest on a COVID nasal vaccine? Well, we're still waiting to see the data from the first approved uh, major trial, randomized trial from India, the Barrett Biotech. They haven't provided the data, even though it's approved by the regulatory agencies in India. Uh, and there are another several more vaccine large trials that are about to finish, which we'll get a readout from. I'm convinced that they will help us block infections. They won't be 100%. They may not last more than a few months, but taking a nasal spray every few months is a whole lot better than getting shots uh, twice or three times a year. So I'm optimistic, but we're still some months out from seeing uh, the data from trials and, of course, getting it here in the U.S. because it hasn't been made to be any priority in this country. And it's being developed much more in countries like India, Mexico, China, uh, and other places. 
And we've been seeing some pretty drastic news coming from China for some time now. What do you think we can learn from how China is handling their COVID situation? Well, they took a very draconian uh, policy all the way through uh, in recent recent times, which kept COVID close to zero. But they didn't uh, set up for the transition about when they were going to open things up. Uh, And so this is the problem. They didn't get vaccines, particularly for people um, who are 60 plus years of age, uh, out at high levels. You know, they were very disappointing. Their vaccines haven't worked as well against uh, the the Omicron variants as the ones we have. So that's why they have such profound spread. Uh, The hospitalizations and death numbers are extremely high, even though they're not transparent about that. Uh, And so they just, in this last phase, they just let things go, you know, just unfortunately, because had they been able to work like many other countries that suppress COVID really well, like New Zealand, uh, Australia, and and other places, and got the vaccines, you know, really um, out with boosters the way they needed to, they would have been able to uh, come out relatively unscathed. But that's not the issue here. They have such little infection-induced immunity that that's uh, taking a big toll there. And it's not done yet. Um, That's going to go on for some time. And finally, the focus of the House Committee on Coronavirus was recently shifted. What can you tell us about that? Well, unfortunately, this is so political. And so we now have, with a Republican Congress uh, majority, uh, interest in having hearings about the origins of uh, the virus and uh, all sorts of things that are just really unfortunate. Uh, That's not going to help anything right now except add to divisiveness. Uh, And, uh, you know, this is is not good. The undermining of uh, the science uh, is the last thing we need right now. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. As always, Dr. Topol, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Aid, and Happy New Year. San Diego's South Bay is home to about 450,000 people but it's not home to a public four-year university, at least not yet. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer updates us on efforts to bring a university presence to South County. Right now, Southwestern College is the South Bay's only public option for higher education. That's where Faisal Al-Najjar is now studying dental hygiene. He already has a bachelor's degree in human biology from UC San Diego, roughly 20 miles north. There was a lot of people that like commuted from South Bay to UCSD. Now imagine telling them they can go to some classes 10 minutes from home instead of having to drive all the way up here. And that idea is becoming reality, starting with San Diego State University's new TV and film studio coming to Chula Vista. And more university expansions could be on the way. Maria Anguiano is a UC regent and a National City native. The South Bay is a very vibrant, uh, dynamic community with a lot of talent, and we want to make sure that UC is at the table. So the UC is starting to look at sites for a satellite campus in South Bay. The city of Chula Vista has already set aside nearly 400 acres near Otay Ranch Town Center with plans for a combined university and technology park. It's been a project that's been ongoing for over 30 years. John McCann is the new mayor of Chula Vista. We're building around it uh, to be able to make sure that the campus has the infrastructure, has the housing, Uh, to be able to support the university. 
While the city has set aside land for a university, Anguiano says the exact location for a South Bay UC expansion isn't set in stone. Some campuses have a huge room to grow. Others are going to grow in ways of creating satellite campuses, using opportunistic spaces, partnerships with community college campuses. Wherever a new school goes, Al-Najjar says he hopes the needs of local students are considered. Some might not have a car, some might not just be able to afford the gas, some might not be able to afford the parking permit. McCann says having a university will lead to economic and binational growth for Chula Vista. You talk to almost anybody in the community, they're encouraging a university, and we want to make sure that our kids, our grandchildren, have the opportunity to be able to go to college in Chula Vista. Assemblyman David Alvarez represents most of the South Bay. He says many South County students end up studying and working outside of the region they grew up in. A university will keep them closer to home. So we have land, however, what we need now is the investment to actually build. A South Bay satellite campus can also help the UC system meet its goal of adding up to 33,000 more students by 2030. We have way too many students that are qualified they can't get in. Richard Lieb is the chair of the UC Board of Regents. He also lives in San Diego County. And we want to be able to provide education to those and access to those because we know that when somebody goes to the University of California, they come out really in a much better position. The first step is a tour of the proposed sites with UC San Diego Chancellor Pradeep Kosla, who will have to make the proposal for a satellite campus. I don't know how long it will take to actually have an open, you know, an open area, an open campus, but I do know that the Chancellor has made a commitment to us that it's something that he definitely wants. Groundbreaking for SDSU's new studio is expected to happen this year. Alvarez helped to secure funding for the project and has big goals for the long-term future. Five, seven, ten years after you've got several programs running, perhaps this becomes its own institution because it's been, um, there's been growth, there's enough attraction there, and, 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 and we decide, you know, this should be a new state university of some sort. UC alum Al-Najjar has one request for universities that come to South County. It should really be modeled after what I would say Southwestern has offered me, which was the smaller classes, more um, intimate connection with the professor, like they actually know you. UC officials plan to do their South Bay site tour in the first quarter of this year. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. 
For many, the start of the new year marks a time for new or renewed goals, which often include healthier habits. And for some, this means participating in dry January, where you detox from the winter holiday season by not drinking for a month. A way to wipe the slate clean after perhaps a boozy few weeks. One way to keep on track can be non-alcoholic alternatives. Joining us to talk about some of these options is San Diego freelance drinks writer Beth Demon. Uh, Welcome, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me. Right. So from what I hear, non-alcoholic beer has always been pretty bad, got a pretty bad taste, uh, but they are showing up on shelves from local craft breweries. So is that changing? Are non-alcoholic beers tasty now? They are much tastier than they have been in the past. Every single year, I am impressed by just the different options coming out from different producers across the country and world and right here in San Diego. So they have certainly outgrown their uh, their reputation and are getting better by the day. And why do you think these breweries are upping their non-alcoholic game? I think more people are asking for them and not just non-alcoholic beers specifically, but just a diversity of products in general, especially in in craft beer, really the core consumer is kind of aging out of being able to drink three, four, five beers uh, at any given time and are looking for gluten-free alternatives, looking at things like hard seltzers and non-alcoholic beer is just a way to allow the consumer to enjoy the beverage that they want without some of the baggage that tends to come along with it. Like weight gain. Hangovers, anything Mm -hmm. like that, sure. (laughs) Uh, What types of drinks work best as non-alcoholic alternatives? Well, I'm primarily a beer drinker, so I am um, a little bit biased towards the NA beers that have been coming out. But really, cocktails are where I see the innovation and the creativity for these mocktails. Uh, some people hate that term, but uh, but I like it and think it's clever. And I, I think that the non-alcoholic or zero-proof cocktails are really driving the creativity of the segment, but beer is pretty good as well. I haven't really been terribly impressed with some of the non-alcoholic wines that I've tried, but I think that they're certainly going to to catch up to spirits and beer at some point. You know, often people drink to be social, to connect with other people. Do these kinds of alternatives help keep these connections while allowing us to cut back on drinking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about how hard it is for adults to make friends with one another outside of work or if you have kids or anything like that. I mean, I remember in my mid-20s moving from Virginia to San Diego, and I didn't really know how to make friends other than going to bars. And so I think people who are sober, sober curious, or just looking to cut back a little bit, uh, having an alternative without alcohol while maintaining that kind of social aspect of of drinking, the thing that brings us together and the thing that many people like, I think it's a great alternative and a great option for people. There's often pressure to drink, which can be uncomfortable, especially for people who don't drink at all. Um, Could this help abstainers too? 
I don't see why not. I mean, even when I was pregnant and I was trying some of these non-alcoholic beers that were terrible, I would occasionally going out before I would even before I even told anybody that I was pregnant, you know, maybe have a sip or a taster or a very light sessionable beer. And and people noticed and said, oh, you know, you're you're drinking less. And they felt empowered to ask me about my my health or my body or whether I was pregnant or not. And it makes people uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable. And there's a million reasons why people don't drink, whether it be health, stress, pregnancy, whatever. And to have to explain it to people, I think is already going to be uncomfortable. But being able to participate without that fear of having to explain yourself is really helpful. And it's just more common now. People drinking a non-alcoholic beer for any reason. I just don't see many people asking about it as much as they used to. And I think that's a really positive development. You follow the alcohol industry closely. Is this a trend you see continuing? I really do think that this one has legs. You look at trends like sour smoothie IPAs or cold IPAs or, you know, the, the resurgence of the espresso martini. And and I think that this one has a little bit of staying power for a lot of different reasons. But um, will its trajectory keep skyrocketing? No, of course not. But I, I think that this one is in it for the long haul, for sure. And what do you think is really driving this sh- this shift uh, in terms of, of alcohol consumption? I think if you look at drinking habits of the past, we'll say generation, People have typically picked a certain beverage alcohol segment and kind of stuck with it. You were a wine drinker. You're a scotch drinker. You're a beer drinker. That is not really the case for Gen Z and the younger drinking generations. They're drinking for flavor, not necessarily because of a loyalty to a specific base spirit. Uh, I think that this is just another option for people to have a lot of flavor without really any of the booze. You know, it's an alternative to iced tea, to coffee, to sparkling water, anything like that. And I think that also the relaxation of cannabis laws state by state, it's another way for people to get a buzz and maybe drinking and ingesting cannabis it's just another way for people to pick and choose how they how they want to relax. And maybe having both of them would be just a little bit too much for people. So it's it's a lot of different things, I think. Hmm. Are there places in San Diego where you can find a great mocktail? Oh, sure. There are places that are really well known for having them on their menu. And I think that we're going to see it more and more. Um, even places like Mr. A's and Juniper and Ivy have started dabbling with them. Um, I don't think that we can talk about mocktails or zero proof cocktails without mentioning Kindred and Mothership and South Park. They're really driving a lot of this revolution here locally. Let's say Raised by Wolves and UTC. I know that they have some options for, for the Sober Curious. And if you really want to get Deluxe, Valle and Oceanside offer some, uh, Campfire in Carlsbad, Botanica in North Park. And of course, for beer, Athletic Brewing Company is really leading the forefront of the NA beer movement. And even Alesmith has gotten into the game, releasing their first NA IPA. So there's certainly no shortage of places around San Diego. 
All right. So the last mocktail you had, what was in it and what did it taste like? The ones that I find personally really appealing are very botanical driven. We're talking about uh, things, things like citrus fruits or lavender, lemon, anything that's really refreshing and floral with kind of that gin aspect to it or or non-gin however they're kind of replicating that i think that those are going to be some of the the favorite ones around town and my personal favorites sounds quite refreshing <laughs> all right beth demon is a freelance drinks writer her first book the craft beer lover's guide to cider is scheduled for release in the fall beth thank you so much thanks for having me Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.